As we prepare for um, God's word, I'm going to pray for us and we'll begin. Father, thank you for just the promises of scripture that remind us that you are faithful beyond compare. And as we look at this glorious one verse of the Bible, it just speaks so much of your extravagant, incredible love that keeps us um, truly stunned by your faithfulness, your mercy. So be glorified, O Lord, as we come together. May we be humbled before you most of all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word, and it comes from Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we have done what Isaac Watts wrote about all those years ago. We have surveyed the wondrous cross. And I want to summarize for you this road, this journey that we've been on as we have looked at this one verse. We have explored the difference between self-glory and cross-glory. And then we've delved deep into understanding what this cross glory means, that it has different aspects. The the glory of the cross gives us an example. We examine it. We understand there's an exception to this idea. There's uh, sometimes a false ease in understanding the cross, but there is ultimately an exaltation of this cross. And today we're going to look at this last aspect of the cross, that is to say the effect of the cross for us, as Paul writes about in this one verse when he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the effect of it, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So two effects, and we'll look at the first effect, the world has been crucified to me. Now I want to look at how the world has been crucified to us in two ways. First is that the world has been unveiled to us. Now, prior to Jesus and his death on the cross and our trust in that cross, know that the world's allure and seduction is so strong that we cannot avoid it. It's just something we inherently do. And so every, every advertisement Every word spoken by a good friend, a family member, by a television show or by a movie, all of that sort of hooks onto our hearts and we instinctively always go with, well, whatever the world says, that's what I want to follow. Without Christ, we'll always follow the world. And what the cross does is that it empties slowly but surely our heart's desire for the world. Jesus warns us in Mark chapter 8, he said that our hearts are going to always cling to the profit of this world, but we don't want to sell our soul for the sake of this world. The challenge, though, is that the world, so often for us, apart from Christ, always looks spectacular. You know, even Satan, who's called the prince of this world by Paul, the god of this world, Satan is not someone when you look at, he's ugly and grotesque. He's actually beautiful. 
Look at what Paul says about Satan, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Not a single person in this world would ever fall for Satan's schemes if he looked evil, if he looked horrific. No, he doesn't look horrific. Actually, primarily, he looks beautiful. He draws you in. He makes everything around you look as though I want that above all else. And so that's Satan's primary appearance. He doesn't look devilish or perverse. Only when he's forced to do so will he reveal that side of himself. Otherwise, he's very content on looking beautiful. And that's sort of the reason why I think for so many of us, we get caught with the idea that, well, if a a person, a friend, a family member, a church member, we see them weekly and outwardly they look beautiful, but inwardly there's a, a destruction that's going on. And it's so hard to tell. You just can't tell. If I were to tell you to look to your left and to your right, and you don't have to do this, but there could be a grotesqueness that is going on in someone's soul, but externally they look beautiful. Everything's well put together. Now, an example of this is uh, if you've ever either experienced it, know of someone who's been a part of it, if they've ever been a part of an exorcism. And um, it's, those are some of the most stunning but really horrifying instances that a person can experience. A demon-possessed person, if you encounter them, they often sound sweet. They can be a, almost have an, a childlike appearance, look innocent. But when compelled by the power of the name of Jesus, that person's voice begins to change. It deepens, it turns gruff, and the eyes start distorting, and the face starts contorting. Suddenly, this beautiful person becomes a horror. And this is all in the guise of sweetness. Now, Satan rarely takes that route, because he knows if he goes down that road, he's already lost. So when he has to reveal himself as he truly is, then he has no power. It's been done away with. But primarily, he rarely goes that route. And so likewise, the same is the very world that Satan controls. The world looks beautiful externally. It looks successful. It's something that when we see the success of others, we want it, we envy it. When we see uh, the beauty of others, perhaps on television or in the movies, There's an inherent jealousy within us that says, I want that. And if there's a beauty product that they're selling, then we want that beauty product. If there is a workout program and regimen, then we're going to follow that because they look like that. I want to look like that. And that's the world. The, The world, apart from Christ, is really grotesque. I mean, think of when we were first building this building and, you know, you, you sort of come up with an architectural plan and you can almost create a 3D rendering of that plan. And so you, you sort of see the, what it could be and it looks spectacular, right? It looks, wow, we're going to live in this place. Then you start the construction, then you slowly finish it. And as so many of you know, in this very building, there were rats and cockroaches. And uh, I've had to kill many of both. And in the midst of where things look great, there's rats and cockroaches. Right now, in one of our offices, there's water pouring out. Not a ton, but enough drips from the 
roof and we're realizing, oh, the roof isn't exactly the way we thought it was. This is the world. The world in its architectural form, in, in developing structures, it looks beautiful. It's, I want, to, I want to live there until you actually live in it. And how many of you have bought a house and, you know, when you first move in, you think, this is great until the first rains come, until ants flood your house, until a squirrel comes and starts living in your, behind your refrigerator, which is happening to my daughter in the East Coast. I mean, literally a squirrel broke in and is living, and they can't get it out. So, I mean, that's the world. So that picture is where things are today. I want to list to you a few talented people. Robin Williams, Whitney Houston, Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade. Do you know what they have all in common? They all committed suicide. These are successful, powerful, wealthy people whom everyone said, I want to be like them. I want to have what they have. And there are so many more. The list was, as I was looking over this message and thinking of who could I add, I could have added so many more names. So how is it that people who are so successful, who have everything, could be so miserable? And I think if all of us are really honest with ourselves, there are points in our lives where we begin to see this deep-seated loneliness when we place our hope in the world. The reason why that is the case is because all of us have a finality to us. Death is the end. Yesterday, Sue and I had the opportunity to go um, visit one of our church members who have loved ones in a nursing home. And I've done this numerous times. And you go to a nursing home, and especially in COVID these days, you see just how hard it is to look at someone at the end of their days and see this perhaps a rigorous man or a, you know, a vibrant woman now literally bone thin and living the last of their days. And of course, they have a story, and there's success, and there's happy times. And, but at the end of all of our lives, it's always the same ending. It's death. And no matter how you die, even if you were to die in your sleep, death is grotesque. It's not how it's supposed to be, which makes sense in a world where everything is fleeting always, and it never truly satisfies Take that then, and now with that, you can see the cross. You know, the cross was so horrific that really no one wants to look at it. If you were to ever see a live crucifixion, I'm not saying do this, but there you can go to the internet and see them actually, because people do get crucified even to this day. And people cannot look at it. It's just so horrific. It's horrifying to look at a crucifixion. The crucifixion, the cross, was so horrific and so ugly and so distorted and perverted and gruesome and grotesque because that's what our sins are like. Isaiah predicts this in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When Isaiah is predicting the Savior, Christ, would be so disfigured and despised that people would hide their faces. They couldn't look. Well, that's the cross. 
The cross is the place where the deep ugliness and grotesqueness of our hearts, which has the ultimate outcome of death, that's what we need to see at that cross. So when the world has been crucified to me, it's to have our eyes open and to actually see what this world is truly like, that it's not satisfying. Ultimately, no matter how beautiful, alluring, seductive it is, it's always grotesque in the end. It never leaves you satisfied because death is its end. That's one effect of the cross. The other in that the world has been crucified to me is that not just the negative, but the positive is that Jesus is unveiled through that crucifixion. We get to see him as he is. The savior now becomes wondrous. When the world fades, the savior becomes glorious to us. He becomes breathtakingly spectacular, beautiful. We're amazed by him. You can't take your eyes off of him. As much as you don't want to see the cross, just like a, how we often are with such horrific things, but with Christ, the beauty outshines even the grotesqueness. And so therefore, we want to see him. How does a man who is struggling with pornography overcome it? I tell you, it's not going to be by accountability groups and um, reading books about it and trying to figure out all these things. Ultimately, there has to be a transformation of the heart. His eyes need to be changed. He needs to be able to take all the junk and filth that is in his mind and somehow all of that needs to be washed away clean. And the only way is that actually there has to be something more beautiful than the world's ugliness. It's, you know, if I, if I um, chose, for example, I look at a pig in a pigsty in their filth, and if I were to say, I want to be in relationship with that pig over my, my wife, you would think that's absurd. But that's what we choose in this world so often. When seeing Christ rightly is that we always choose the most beautiful. See, Jesus isn't trying to keep us from enjoyment or pleasure, or experiencing beauty and wonder and something spectacular. That's not who God is. God always wants the utmost of beauty and wonder and splendor and excitement and pleasure for you. It's, you're only going to find that in him. Any other road is always short-lived, always. And it will never satisfy. But we do not get to that place until we see both the ugliness of our sin and then the power of the cross to change that ugliness. But we rarely get to that first step. We won't see Christ as beautiful until we see our ugliness. If I am unwilling to forgive someone, no matter what they have done against me, if they come and say, would you forgive me? And my instinct is say, no, I refuse. Well, I will never understand that which is beautiful because my heart is still covered in ugliness. And we'll never understand, well, Jesus died for that. He gave his life so that I could be freed from that. Without the cross, you will never understand God. You can't. It's just impossible. And words such as holiness, purity, glory, those sound so abstract, I know. It sounds as though they're theoretical words. They, they don't mean much. But they don't mean much to people who don't understand ugliness and horror and the filth of my own soul. 
what my eyes have seen, what I've said with my mouth in anger, with jealousy I've experienced covetousness that has burned my soul and caused me to imagine things I would never want anyone to know about. This is what the cross frees me from. It allows me to see me as I am. And when I understand that, then I understand, oh yeah, God gave his life for me through his son. That it was his holiness that is offended. That God is perfectly pure when I'm not. And his righteousness is full. And he should and must punish sin rightly. Or he is not God. Without being in awe of this glory, we'll never understand why Jesus gave his life on that cross. So the world has been crucified to me. I just don't want it as much as I... I understand it. I know that in my mind. And I'm actually motivated to say, I don't want the world that way. The second effect is that I have been crucified to the world. So how are we crucified to the world? First is that you also know when you stand out from the world. Paul says um, that you were crucified. Remember, being crucified is you're hung up on a cross for all the world to see. And Jesus says this in John 16, 33. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. He also said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It should not come as a surprise to us that when you follow Jesus, you will face trials. I mean, Jesus makes it so clear for us, right? Those two verses It doesn't give us an exception clause. If you're good enough, you won't face this. It's, no, you're going to face this if you follow me. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus did die on a cross. He was executed and tortured despite doing nothing wrong. That's the God that we are saying we worship today, is a God who did nothing wrong and still suffered. And how can we, as his disciples who follow Christ say, well, I don't want to go through that myself. Uh, So there is no greater justice in a sense than Jesus dying on a cross to avert God's just wrath against sin. Jesus faced God's justice fully. None of us will face that in the way that Jesus did. But also there's no greater injustice than Jesus dying on the cross despite his sinlessness. And so at the cross, you have perfect justice and perfect injustice, both concurrently at the same time. Perfect justice, God's punishment of us in our sins against his holiness. Perfect injustice, he was sinless and he suffered the punishment of our sins. And so if that is the outflow, what we believe, then it should spur us on to do certain things. If you tell your neighbor about Jesus, for example, you're going to face ridicule. Students, what I want you to do is go to school, tell your classmates or your teammates that you follow Jesus and you want them to follow Jesus too. How do you think you'll be treated? How will they respond? They might ignore you. They might ostracize you. They might, you will never be accepted into their group. And maybe you'll be thought of as a freak. And is there anything more frightening for a student than to be thought of as a freak? Really, it's, it's, uh, it's one of our greatest fears is to stand out in a crowd. 
But of course, as you get older, the stakes get higher. No longer is it just not fitting into a particular peer group. Now, not fitting into a particular peer group means that you're not going to get promoted. You're not going to get the type of job you want. You're going to be thought of as one of those weird, odd people that just should not be in any leadership. Maybe you'll actually, it might even cost you your job. So following Christ, the stakes get much higher. You know how high it does get is that Jesus says that when you follow him, you will be hated by whom? By your mother, by your father, by your son, by your daughter, by your siblings. In our culture, in our world today, it's more so than ever before. If you follow Christ and you say, I want to honor him with my life, it might be your very children who are going up to you and despising you for that or your parents. And they tell you that stake is far greater than anything that we can ever experience in this world. But here's what Jesus says and what Peter says. Don't be surprised. Why are you so surprised this happens? In fact, you should expect it. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We should never be surprised. You know why we shouldn't be surprised? Because Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He also said, if the world hates you, it's gonna, it hated me first. So of course it's going to hate you. So if you're following Christ, get ready. It, it actually becomes hard. Now, that's not so encouraging. You're probably thinking, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty unnerving. But my friends, without being crucified to the world, you don't have opportunities to see joy, not your utmost joy. You won't have, uh, have opportunities to see salvation, transformation, redemption, forgiveness, deliverance, when we refuse to deny ourselves and take up the cross daily and follow Jesus and trust him with our lives, we won't see the wonders of Christ. We won't see the spectacular and we will certainly not see the beautiful. My mother-in-law's church, every Wednesday, they go door-to-door um, evangelizing in their community. You know, these days, and this is in Livermore, and going door-to-door evangelizing, that's that's the old way of evangelism. No one does that anymore. Actually, only two types of people do that. One is called Jehovah's Witnesses, and the other is called the Mormons. But Christians don't do that. And they were doing this throughout all of COVID. And so you can imagine they open the door, and people are scared, and they're scared, and, but it doesn't stop them. And so you would think, what good is that? That just sounds old-fashioned and dangerous. Well, what's very interesting is that this is, my mother-in-law goes to an immigrant Korean church where they only speak for worship, the Korean language. And the people who have been responding to their door-to-door evangelism have been people who are of Indian descent, former Hindus, Hindus. And so they have a number of Indians going to a Korean language church, listening to translation of a sermon and literally about 15 to 20 Indian families coming to a Korean church. Now, 
that just doesn't make sense, right? Well, it doesn't make sense to get your, the door slammed in your face and in the middle of COVID when you're supposed to be safe and everything is about making sure you hedge all your bets and disinfect everything, make everything clean so that you never are placed in a situation of danger, risk, or sacrifice. But I don't know about you, but when I look through scripture and I look through the gospels and the New Testament church, and as we've been studying in the book of Acts, I don't see a single place where safety is what drives everything. No, it is the gospel and a gospel where our savior gave his life on a cross, where God emptied himself and made himself nothing, took on the form of a slave, took a risk, knew it wasn't even a risk. You know why? He knew he would give his life. So knowing that he was going into the fire, running straight into it, he decided to do it. Why? So that you and I would have life with him forever. So that death would lose its sting. So that the grotesque would become beautiful. If we are not crucified to the world, meaning we are ready to face ridicule, rejection, hardship, slam doors, even the risks of a disease. If we're not ready to do that, we will never experience the beautiful. We'll only buy into the world's lies of saying, it's all about what you experience here, prosperity, wealth, comfort. You live that life and everything will be happy for you. It's an outright lie. But here's the promise that we're told from Jesus in Luke 15, seven. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This idea of 99 people who feel as though, oh, I don't need to repent. My life is great. And everything I do is spot on, perfect. And I don't do anything wrong. I never need to say sorry to anybody. I don't fail anyone. I'm, I'm okay. Jesus says that those 99 people will never experience the joy that that one person uh, that one sinner has in repentance and heaven rejoices over that. We miss out on the beautiful when we focus merely on the grotesque of this world. And this world is grotesque because its end is death. Everything from your job to your health to your family, everything about your life ultimately without Christ is death. And I just... I was just sitting there with, in the midst of all of these elderly who are literally on the last stages of their life. And you walk away shaking your head, feeling so much pity, but actually so much reality. This is my life one day. Right now, everything's great, but I'm going to be here. And you might even say, oh, I don't want to go to a nursing home. And, you know, you go to your kids, hey, whatever you do, don't put me in a nursing home, okay? Let me live a good life in your house and take care of me and bring me to the bathroom when I need to go, okay? You do it. That's not a life to live either. Is that what really we're hoping for? That image, that's what we want for our lives? We save, live. Everything we do is so that we can end our days without actually being so miserable but we're always miserable unless you have Christ. Because in Christ, that is not the end. That is not my life. That is but a small picture of it. And when you know that 
Christ has been crucified for you. So therefore, the world is crucified to you. You live differently. You know how else we're crucified to the world? Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Your worth and value is no longer based on what you do or what you fail to do. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. We covered this first. Meaning, neither your sin nor your legalistic righteousness. You can try to obey God with all your religious acts. That's why we always say with communion, hey, don't come up here and just take communion just because you think that something magical is gonna happen to you when you take it. If you don't believe in Christ, then you drink judgment on yourselves. It's not worth it. It's but a a ritual, an image. But if Christ is your everything, then taking communion is reminding you Oh yeah, I have Christ. I've been crucified with him. And so legalism in and of itself destroys. And I had this, I was uh, talking to Sue about this and she had noted in Titus how much legalism destroys us in parenting. Um, Paul writes about that. When we are legalistic in our parenting, it, it really hinders the, the growth, the spiritual growth of our children to be gracious and merciful, to be kind and compassionate, to show the love of Christ through a crucified Savior to your child. And I wish I could spend another two hours talking about what practically that looks like because I do think there is an outlook to that. But legalism destroys. So whether you're in circumcision nor uncircumcision, because the other part, licentiousness, doing whatever you want, sinning and not caring about God, both of them are rooted in I'm my own Savior. My identity is built on what I do. Whatever I do is what saves me. And so the most powerful person in the world, and students here, listen and hear me good. If you can be freed from the opinion of your fellow classmates because of your rootedness in your identity in Christ, that's called powerful. You will be freed from the power of what any kid does What the world tells you, if the world tells you, oh yeah, you're not genetically a girl, you're actually a boy, and you need to do that, that's called the grotesque power of the world. And what we're freed from is to say, no, God has created you special, and he's also saved you, and you're righteous in him. You are righteous in him if you believe in Christ. And so therefore, whatever the world thinks, or your classmates think, or your teachers think, you can be free. And when you are free, there is no power greater than that. And so suddenly, you're not, you're not just bound by what everyone else is doing. This is not just for students, obviously. This is for all of us. When we give up the road to success, and my friends, we who are of older age, we need to be free to give up this road of success. We have to be able to give that up. That is everyone's trying to climb on top of each other to take. And you can decide not to try less, but to place your efforts and labors in that which eternally satisfies. You never believe the lie that your good works makes you more righteous before God. They don't. They never do. The world is not just outside our church walls, though. The world is inside our church. Know that. It is just as much inside because as long as we're rooting ourselves based on status 
our, what we achieve, what we accomplish, that's just as worldly as whatever the world outside these walls is facing. So recognize that inside the church, there is this still danger of trying to determine success based on what we talked about last week, the world's metrics. Success is how smart you are in your IQ test or how well you do on a standardized test or how much money you make or what type of school you go to. All those metrics tragically are still in the world or still in the church when Paul makes it so clear that in the church you have slave and free. There was Philemon and Onesimus in the church and they were brothers in the church. In the church, they're not slave and free. They're brothers. The world standards do not apply to what we do. We are distinctively different because we are together in Christ equal. And that is a freedom that is found in no other place in this world except the body of Christ. There's nothing like what Pastor Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. The idea that when you believe in Christ, it literally expels out of your brain and your heart, all those things that corrupt our soul. When you find Christ so attractive, so beautiful, and the cross so wondrous, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. When that happens, suddenly we do become freed from the powers of this world and all of its allures. One of the things that George Sneeman always says is behind the poor is the poorest of the poor. So if you were to go to Africa and start going on these community visits, you'll see many poor people. And whenever you see someone who's really poor, he'll say, no, no, don't look at that person. Look about 100 feet behind. And you do see someone. And there's something different. They're even poorer of dress. And they look more disheveled and their eyes are more empty. And so one of the stories that he shares is the time that he was in a place like where he is now in Goma in the uh, Dominican, uh, I'm sorry, and the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. He and um, a friend of his, Eric, they got out of the car, they pulled into a village, and as he opens the door, they're literally surrounded by a sea of children. This is a place where they very, very rarely get visitors. Not even uh, relief agencies go into places like this because they're, as Hans calls it, they're on the lowest rung of the ladder. No one cares about them. And so he'll go in and the sea of children, and if you look at the sea of children, they all have tattered clothing. They're all emaciated because they've had nothing to eat. Um, They all have, but they're running, they're screaming, they're happy, they're excited. And he tells a story of how he opens a door, he looks out, and way in the back behind all these children is one little boy. And this little boy is on these makeshift stick crutches. And his feet are obviously lame. His, he's not running or jumping or shouting. He's just in the back. And he obviously can't get to the front. So George tells a story of his, as he gets out of the car, he sort of makes his way slowly but surely towards that little boy. And the, the crowd of children start parting the waves like the Red Sea. You know, the, so they start moving to the side. And he goes right up to that boy, 
kneels on his knee and he says, what is your name? I want to know your name. I came here for you. And all the other kids are just looking and seeing this big white man, you know, saying, they're all going in awe. What's so special about this boy? You know, my friends, you and I are that boy, spiritually speaking. We couldn't move. There was no way, no hope. There's just this emptiness. It's the grotesque. Until you see yourself as that little boy, you will never experience the wonder of meeting a king, of meeting a savior, someone who loved you and gave himself for you. But when you do, when you see yourself as that little boy did, you suddenly realize that this person comes and says, I want you. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my brother. You're my sister. You belong with me. I'm taking you home today. And I'm going to bring you into my house. The cross of Christ is the most horrific, ugly, tragic event in all of world's history. The cross of Christ is the most beautiful, spectacular, amazing event in all of world's history. Both happened at the exact same time for you so that you can come to him, so that the Father can love you and he gave himself for you. This is our God. This is our Savior, our Lord. Well, I hope like Paul then, you too will say, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, who can understand your extravagant love? The cross of Christ, the bleeding of your own son, where no one would want to look. People esteemed him not. He was despised, rejected. We would turn our heads away if we were to see that cross. In that horror also comes beauty. For those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. It is our treasure, our delight. It is our identity, our dream. It is the vision of our life. And we know, even if we were to follow you to that cross, no matter what suffering or trials would come our way, we know that it is but a light and momentary suffering. But the eternal weight of glory far outshines it all. Help us, O oh Lord, to see that and to treasure this cross, to remember your mercies to us. I pray, O oh Lord, for those who are questioning, who are doubting, who are in rebellion, who have run away, who have not been willing to humble themselves before you. Holy Spirit, would you break the bonds in the hardened heart? Would you soften it today so that no one would leave this place without coming and facing the very cross of Christ and even yielding to that cross and saying, Lord Jesus, I understand. I want to turn to you today. 
May no one pass by this cross today, O Lord, without weighing it so deeply in their soul that they would experience the discomfort and agony that you faced and the agony of their own soul. We thank you and praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.